Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. Today's episode was first broadcast back in September, so if you have a comment, please email it to us at upraccess at gmail.com. That's upraccess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Barry Gilbert's fascination with grizzly bears almost got him killed in Yellowstone National Park. He recovered, returned to fieldwork, and devoted the next several decades to understanding and protecting these oft-maligned giants. He spent thousands of hours among wild grizzlies in Yosemite in the Yellowstone National Parks, Alberta, coastal British Columbia, along Brooks River in Alaska's Katmai National Park, and where hundreds of people gathered to watch dozens of grizzlies feast on salmon. His research has centered on how bears respond to people and each other, with a focus on how to keep humans and bears safe. Drawn from his decades of experience, his new book is titled One of Us, A Biologist Walk Among Bears. And the book explodes myths that depict grizzlies as bloodthirsty beasts that kill for pleasure. It reveals the intelligent, adaptable side of these astonishingly social animals. It also explains their pivotal role in maintaining and protecting their fragile ecosystems. Uh, Barry Gilbert uh, is a... Uh, Wildlife biologist? Yes. You, uh, you, yep. I have a PhD in uh, zoology from Duke University with a specialty in animal behavior. Taught for many years here at Utah State University. Yes, I did. I came first in 1976 and uh, retired from teaching in 2001, although I still had graduate students in the field working on bears. So I uh, kept my office and uh, kept doing research. Um, so, Dr. Gilbert, um, this is this is fascinating. You've spent a career with with these amazing uh, animals. What uh, what got you into studying bears? Well, uh, sort of the back door. Uh, after I got my uh, PhD, and uh, I did a, a postdoc in, in Yellowstone uh, studying pronghorn, uh, the lovely antelope there, and then I. Uh, Got a research job in the province of Alberta. Being Canadian, I thought I might move back there. And uh, first thing I knew, I was uh, responsible for uh, coming up with ways to stop black bear damage in bee yards. They were uh, in Alberta. The beekeepers were uh, losing upwards of a million dollars a year. Five hundred bears coming in, breaking up their uh, apiaries, and that uh, led me to uh, do some experiments uh, with electric fences and aversive uh, conditioning, try to uh, not kill bears but keep them away from bee yards. So uh, not that I was adamant about studying bears, but when I came back and, and got a faculty position, I thought maybe I'll have a look at uh, bear behavior in Yellowstone Park. Uh, being a natural park, and I thought pretty natural grizzly bears, uh, and they had growing numbers of people on trails and a lot of conflicts between uh, bears and people. Not a lot of injuries, but uh, the people might have been uh, diverting bears away from important habitat. You got the bear jams on the roads and those sort of things. So the Park Service uh, uh, gave me a contract, and I had a master student to work with me. And uh, it was my first year on campus. It was my first week uh, up in Yellowstone. And the first day we saw bears, I ended up being almost mauled to death 
on a mountaintop, which is not a great way to start a career. <laughs> no. <laughs> and the amazing thing, I think, to people is that you went on, you know, for decades to, to study these animals. I know you don't like to dwell on that, that mulling, because I think the reason you don't is, is that it, it, it can kind of lend itself to that stereotype of, of vicious yes, birds. Yes, it plays into the public's yeah. uh, view that these are horrible animals that want to eat your baby if you go into the woods, right. you know. I'd like to talk a little bit about it, though, because, um, you know, this is this is an incredible, incredible encounter. Uh, so you uh, you had been observing the, this this mother bear with her with her cubs, right? Yes, from one side of the valley, we're at the top of the Gallatin drainage, ten miles from the nearest road in northwestern Yellowstone, and uh, Bruce Hastings, my student, and I uh, watched the bears from six o'clock in the morning for about an hour. And uh, it was so far away, we couldn't see or hear what was going on between this mother and her cubs and a male bear that kept approaching her. And she was uh, counter, uh, countering his approach because male bears will kill and eat uh, cubs. So my thought was to go uh, around the other side of this uh, small valley, climb up the uh, ridge behind it and bushwhack and come out high up at 9,200 feet and, and be a little closer, like half a mile instead of a mile and a half from bears. Well, unknown to me, the female with the cubs had walked up through the forest, almost going to where I was going to turn out, uh, turn up. And uh, my student stopped for a nature call, and he was maybe 50 yards behind me at least, and I said, I'll just go up on the ridge top and sit down. But when I went over the ridge, I didn't want the skyline, my silhouette on the skyline, to, to get a bunch of elk barking, which would ruin the observation. So uh, I moved swiftly, crouched down so the elk couldn't see me. And I, then I heard a roar in front of me, and uh, uh, there was a grizzly was clawing its way toward me. And unfortunately, I had ended up charging this bear, which if, if you want to get uh, a counter charge, try that sometime. And mm. I ended up uh, being scalped and half my face torn off basically in about uh, 10 seconds. You, I believe you're right. You, you thought, well, I'm probably going to die right here. Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I was uh, pretty sure that I was going to bleed to death there. I was lying in a pool of blood. I remember flies landing on me, if you can imagine. And uh, I heard my cheekbones crunched and torn out. And uh, I, I figured I'd uh, bought the thorn at that stage. Uh, but I was totally conscious, and we had a radio, and my lips were over by my ear, and I to gargled and threw in my throat to my student to call headquarters and uh, get, a, get us a rescue. And, of course, he was freaked out finding me on the ground all bloodied, and uh, he picked up the radio and uh, made three calls, but he forgot to turn the radio on. Mm, oh, no. <laughs> I learned subsequently. Yeah. But he then found out that uh, he needed to turn the switch on. And uh, I had a miraculous uh, rescue from... A uh, helicopter and a, a DC-3 flew in smoke jumpers that landed on that mountain. They stabilized me, and uh, I have pictures of the whole thing because the helicopter pilot stood by and took pictures while these guys uh, put me together mm -hmm. and wrapped me up. I looked like a mummy and took me to uh, Lake Hospital where uh, 
four trauma surgeons had been rotated in from Salt Lake City, and they were just the doctors with Vietnam experience that could handle my kind of uh, trauma. So mm-hmm. I had one bad luck and a whole series of good luck, I yeah, guess. Yeah, amazing. That that team with that experience had just been rotated in, right? That, yes. That, that yeah. worked, worked yeah, on Yeah, Lake you. Hospital wouldn't have had that kind of uh, medical uh, expertise unless mm-hmm. these uh, people hadn't come into a yeah. clinic. It was just a really a fortuitous bit of good luck. Now, in the middle of all this, uh, you t- I don't know who, who you tell this to, you, you you want to make sure, hey, don't destroy the bear, right? She's just yes. She's just acting naturally. She's protecting her cubs. Doing what bears do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, uh, one of the rangers thought he'd make me feel good by telling how many bears they'd killed. And I, I kind of lost my uh, train of thought and said, don't don't dare kill that bear. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it was my fault, actually. It was an accident. Uh, but I triggered uh, the event. And... Uh, doesn't do any good. The bear wouldn't be dangerous to anybody else. It isn't like it. Uh, I didn't know it might start feeding on me, so I told my student to climb the tree, and he said, "No, the bear's gone. It went down the hill, mm. and they found bloody tracks uh, going down the hill. And there wasn't a bear around when the smoke jumpers uh, came out of a DC three and landed on the site and started to put me together and put me in a Stokes litter on the." on the edge of a uh, Bell 47 helicopter, I think, mm-hmm. one of the little Nash-type helicopters. Yeah. Um, it, it was just so fascinating. We you know, won't dwell on this, but you you had the presence of mind to notice the the bear had bad breath. She had, she had, yes. <laughs> you know, on she's breathing on you. She's crunching on you. Right. Um, and and it you know just incredible. You also write that, uh, you know, don't never run. Never run. But, right. of course, she was already charging you when, when you encountered her. Yeah, yeah. And when I looked up, she was charging. Uh, my body just went into automatic. I and I knew that I, I had to get out of there somehow, and I didn't see any skyhooks around that were going to take me up in the clouds. So I, I headed back to the small shrubs, but there weren't even any trees to climb, and I wouldn't have got up one foot up the tree. Mm-hmm. This animal was coming probably at 25 miles an hour across yeah. the rocks toward me. But so, uh, having said that, I, I uh, realized that uh, this was a strange occurrence. It's kind of like being kicked by a horse. You don't give up horsemanship just because a horse kicks you. Uh, you climb back on the horse, or if you fall off, I don't, I'm not a, a horseman, but... Uh, uh, people keep asking me why I went back to work with grizzlies, and I, I really can't answer it other than I like to solve problems between wildlife and people, and I know and knew then that we needed to know more about their behavior. So I took uh, a, a methodology that was kind of like an anthropologist. I studied individual bears, got to know them mostly on salmon streams, eh, so that uh, – the bears all come to the salmon stream, and my students and I got up on platforms and trees in various places and did some very detailed uh, uh, quantitative analysis of their behavior. So uh, I was functioning kind of like an anthropologist asking what this culture is doing. Where do they go to feed? How do they interact with each other? And it And it involved no radio callers or any of that kind of contraptions. I didn't uh, knock the bears down and put the collars on them, which, of course, would have ruined the relationship between bears and people in, in some way. So uh, 
that's why I say we need to have a look at uh, and think of bears the way we do gorillas or chimpanzees or wolves uh, and uh, elephants. They all have their learned behavior, which they pass on. If it's successful, a mother bear can uh, can show uh, a young cub that the cub actually observes uh, what to do. And they swim out in the ocean to islands to feed on seabirds. There's a plethora, which I described in my book, a plethora of uh, learned behavior by bears in different places. And I contrast the coastal bears, which are more pussycats on salmon streams toward people. They basically ignore us, whereas the mountain bears are food-stressed, usually, and they don't like anybody near them. So we have a different relationship to learn about. They don't have to be dangerous, but we have to be careful we don't invade their space and uh, trigger a a charge or something like that. Uh, So um, I'm assuming we've learned over time, right? During your career, during that period, we've learned. What do you think we've learned? I think we've learned, you know, don't habituate the bears because right. famously Yellowstone, you had a bunch of bears that were, you know, coming in. Yeah, if they get accustomed to people, then they often get food conditioned, they're rewarded, and that uh, leads to a, a life of crime, if you mm-hmm. like. And the bears are going to pay for it eventually because they start to do destructive things, where salmon bears do not do that. They are not interested— You. You get habituation to people. They get accustomed or adapted to people. That's what habituation means. But th- they never get food conditioned because they're not interested in our ham sandwiches or peanut butter and jelly. Uh, they're interested in, in salmon. And uh, therefore, uh, that is a very easy situation to manage as long as you don't put too many people in there doing stupid things. They will counter your... Uh, stupidity with a charge, no question about that. But mountain bears are different, and so the contrast I write about in my book uh, of how managers need to vary their uh, management depending on whether mountain bears are coastal bears. Now, where this becomes important uh, with the recent delisting of bears is that uh, if the bears are federally listed as endangered, then the federal government biologists manage the bears, like in the greater Yellowstone system. But the moment they're legally delisted, the uh, management devolves to the surrounding states, Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. And unfortunately, with the bears that have gone from about 300 bears to 600 bears, people just are jumping in the streets saying, success, success, success. But... Uh, if you consider there were perhaps 50,000 grizzly bears in the United States, going from 300 to 600, I don't consider recovered. The federal government says they are recovered, partly politically, because they want uh, to take away the habitat protection so we get oil and gas, we get timber, we get hunting seasons, and the bears don't get a chance to connect to other places to expand. They're going down in the Wind Rivers in Wyoming, and uh, people are a little concerned there because you have cattle on the land, and uh, bears will kill cattle. But uh, uh, just to back up on the uh, on the uh, survival in the 300 to 600, 
uh, if you if you do the math on fifty thousand bears, that's like going from one uh, percent of bears to one point two percent of the original numbers. So the increase may look big. You could say, well, it's a hundred percent increase. You know, three hundred to six hundred. What's the matter with you? But if you Look, that's what we call in ecology a shifting baseline. If you take a low number, it's very easy to show increase. In Utah now with the uh, greater sage grouse, you hear the same kind of arguments. Well, gosh, we've gone from, you know, maybe 1,000 and now we think they're 1,500. Well, there were probably 100,000 sage grouse before Utahns brought in sheep and cattle and the habitat has been decimated in many, many places. We don't even know uh, how uh, rich the habitat was for sage grouse. But we do know there were so many of them that settlers were eating them, the railroads were killing them and serving them on trains. Mm. And there were just, it's such a beautiful bird. And I, and, uh, I think it's sad we don't have the, a greater sage grouse national park where we set aside a big piece of habitat like we do for wolves or grizzly bears. Mm. Uh, of course, that, you know, get into the politics of it, of course. There's there's a whole, <laughs> and perception. That's where I want to come back after a break is is perception of bears, which is very important, of course, you know, in, in terms of, of getting the, you know, getting protections and, and so forth. So we'll do a, a break and then we'll come back and talk about that much more, of course. Uh, the book is... Uh, one of us, a biologist walk among bears. The biologist in question is Barry Gilbert, and he is in studio with us uh, today. Uh, we'll have more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Cash Arts presents Black Violin, Monday, January 17th at 7.30 p.m. at the Ellen Eccles Theater. Ticket and seating information at cacharts.org. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This week on Livewire, Mo Rocca who's written a book of obituaries called Mobituaries on how he wants his obit to read. I'd like the headline to just be, no mo. <laughs> That's this week on Livewire from PRX. Tune in Saturday evening at 5 o'clock to Utah Public Radio. Vonda Jump Norman, social work professor at USU and director of the Trauma Resilience Project at The Family Place, here with a parenting resilience tip. Many parents struggle with whining. One way to prevent it is by giving your child plenty of positive attention and connection time every day. Snuggle, talk, play with him, let him know you love him. When he whines, stay calm. Take a deep breath to center yourself if you need to. Matter-of-factly, tell him you don't like whining. I don't like whining. Use your big boy voice like this. Mom, can I please have a glass of water? If he's asking for something he can't have right now, tell him that you like how he asked and when he'll be able to have it. Thank you for asking with the big boy voice. We can play on the playground after we go to the store. If he's asking for something he's not allowed, thank him for asking nicely and remind him he's not allowed to have this. Tell him something that he can do or have. Be consistent in your expectations and reward positive behavior. When he asks politely, notice it and thank him. 
This tip is brought to you by UPR's Project Resilience. To learn more about the project and explore more resiliency tips, visit upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. Today's episode was first broadcast back in September, so if you have a comment, please email it to us at upraccess at gmail.com. That's upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Barry Gilbert. Uh, He is a a biologist, uh, taught for many years at Utah State University. Barry Gribble's new book, we're talking about this, One of Us, A Biologist Walk Among Bears. Uh, so I want to talk about perceptions, and this is very important, of course. You, um, but you, you talk about how after your mauling, you, you discovered, uh, I guess, uh, as many people do who are you know, subject of news coverage, uh, hard and possible to, to control that coverage. You were a bit distressed about how, the, how that whole thing was covered, right? Yes, uh, too many of the media wanted to uh, emphasize uh, the accident and the injury, which played into the stereotype of bears as being horrible animals. Uh, and uh, I tried to divert them uh, sometimes. Of course, you don't have much control. But uh, I got so that uh, I could turn the discussion about my accident into uh, advocacy for the bear that was kind of the nice contrast that uh, television producers were willing to, to go along with. And uh, as you uh, well know, attitudes and values of people are really important. So we're talking about a uh, change in the attitudes of people toward uh, grizzly bears. And when I uh, guide on the coast of British Columbia and in Alaska, I'm astounded at the number of companies that not only do things like whale watching, but they uh, advertise bear viewing, and they can take people into estuaries or on trails all very safely, and uh, they don't press the bears too hard, but they get uh, many, many international uh, eco-tour-type people, nature tourism, which... uh, has been huge in uh, in Alaska, for example. So it's it's uh, nice to think about, or important to think about values, because if you listen to people that want to hunt grizzly bears, they have very different attitude toward grizzlies than the uh, average person. Something like 90% of the People polled in British Columbia were against grizzly bear hunting. And my attitude is that the grizzly bear could be like the bald eagle. Uh, you, can, you can have lots of them, but you still don't need to hunt them. You know, wildlife managers feel like once you get a certain number of animals, there's a surplus and they're available for hunting. But we don't do that for sandhill cranes, for example. And we don't do it through bald eagles. We don't have an open season on bald eagles. And I think we'll come to a time when we uh, see uh, grizzly bear hunting as as, uh, just murdering great big dogs. Mm. Uh, That's kind of my attitude. And Mm. I'm... I'm, uh, you can say I'm quite biased, but it's based on a lifetime with bears. What would it take to get to that point, do you think? I think... uh, we need to uh, change uh, a bit of our use of public lands. Uh, wildlife is a public resource, 
and uh, it, and we uh, manage it for the future. But when we have uh, uh, cattle leases and sheep uh, in large numbers on public land, like on Forest Service land, we're really talking about single-use exploitation by private organizations. Now, this is public land, and uh, a lot of people... Uh, have argued that we should be getting uh, cattle off. It's subsidized. It's incredibly uh, cheap to have a cow and a calf. It's something like a dollar thirty-five for the whole summer. Well, that's that's a huge subsidy. Now I can just hear the the cattlemen and the ranchers uh, getting their uh, back up on this, but. Uh, the numbers of people are increasing the uh, interest in clean water. I mean, who wants the watershed to have cow manure running down into, into beautiful trout streams? And we use this water in all of our uh, cities and towns. It comes off the mountains. And uh, to the extent that we keep it uh, rather pure, then we have a high quality of water. I know around Seattle, you can't even hike in the watersheds for the wa there. It's just too important to keep that water uh, pure. But if you have uh, you know, tens of thousands of sheep and cattle on a national forest, uh, certainly the water quality declines. The uh, streams get broken down. You get erosion, a whole lot of things. I mean, we know a huge amount about that. So I think what it, what it will take is, is a change in the way we manage. Uh, get rid of this so-called multiple-use management. It isn't multiple-use. A few uh, lead uh, uses like forestry and, and uh, grazing take precedent over wildlife, over recreation, over everything else. But that's a pretty political area, as you uh, as you well know. Uh, definitely, definitely. Um, and uh, you know, if you if you agree, if you disagree, we'd we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can join this conversation. You can email us upraccess at gmail dot com is the email upraccess at gmail dot com. Uh, as you mentioned, it, it I mean it is perception. We'll get into general perception uh, um, later. But if you're a rancher and and a bear has killed your sheep. Right, you know, you're you're going to have a, a def, you're going to have an opposing view to the one you just opposed. Yep. just expressed. And in some cases, they uh, they get paid uh, for some of those losses. Uh, the other uh, approach that's uh, effective in Europe and some places in the United States is to have large uh, large dogs, mountain uh, mountain uh, uh, dogs that are they kind of look like sheep and they're raised. Uh, to be attached to the sheep, and they defend and keep uh, coyotes, wolves, cougars, and grizzly bears away from herds. But it 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 uh, requires a change in a tradition, and uh, and ranchers aren't uh, particularly keen to change the way they operate. They think mm -hmm. because I, I suspect they've done it a certain way, they want to continue doing that. I want to talk a little bit about bear behavior. This may be good because you talk about a dog. Dog versus bear, that seems like a mismatch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, of course, bears, you know, bears want to protect themselves. They, you know, I'm sure That's they right, have... and they have to deal with wolves, and sometimes a pack of wolves, we've learned from both Alaska and in Yellowstone, a pack of wolves can kill a grizzly bear. So uh, grizzly bears uh, 
would like to knock down and, and feed on sheep, but if they have to tackle a, a canid, <laughs> they're often going to go and do, do something else. Um, bears are uh, apparently very social animals. Well, bears can be. They're, they're uh, often viewed as being solitary, which they spend most of their life. But if you look at uh, a mother and a cub together, maybe two, even three years together, that's a lot, a lot of time for the cub to learn uh, many things about food, where it is, uh, how to react to various uh, threats, and all that sort of thing. And I've seen uh, sub-adult male bears that uh, have come to a stream, and all of a sudden, even adult bears recognize each other. They, they first are glowering at each other, and then they smell each other, and they realize this is one of their buddies from way back, and they, you'll see the biggest wrestling match uh, you've ever watched. They're just having a tremendous fun, and you can't do other than believe that uh, they're social and they like the the uh, the company of the, of another bear, and young bears that are dropped by their mother because they've quit nursing will often join another bear as kind of a. Uh, safety companion you know two two sets of eyes are better than one and uh young adolescent bears can be pretty cheeky they'll march in the water uh i've had to deal with them and just have to tell them that that's not appropriate behavior <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, i imagine all the while the adrenaline's pumping this is a this is a big animal Yes. Yeah, fast and, over short distances. And, and the trick is to see what the motivation of the bear's, okay. uh, bear is. If, if you uh, turn and, and move away too fast, you define yourself as a subordinate bear. And you see bears going back and forth on who chases whom. But for a human, that's a very serious thing to do because you're either defining yourself as a subordinate or maybe you're on the menu uh, that day. Whereas if you turn and face the bear... And uh, if you carry bear spray or even if you have a big stick and uh, the bear gets the message, it's making decisions second by second about what you are. And if it sees you're going to be aggressive, they'll often turn away very, very quickly. It's amazing uh, how responsive they are to human behavior. So the first thing a person has to do, of course, in grizzly bear country is, is be alert at distances and not crowd a bear, get it within its uh, personal space. But if you get too close, then you have to uh, treat the bear like a big angry dog. And uh, it's what you do that'll, that'll affect the outcome. Hopefully you have spray and if the bear either bluff charges or charges at you, you stand and uh, dust them with this uh, horrible chemical, <laughs> which will temporary blind them and uh, make them cough. It, it affects the mucous membranes, the mouth, the nose, and the eyes. And uh, the, the science on the studies of that shows that it's a, an effective deterrent. But, now, Burstburg hadn't been invented when you were mauled. No, no, that's right. Yes, you, People you didn't have anything there to... No, and yeah. if I'd had a pistol, uh, I'd have had to have combat training to stand and shoot a pistol at a charging mm -hmm. bear. That sounds very good. It's uh, John Wayne stuff out of the movies uh, where the good guy shoots the bad guy. But uh, I can tell you, your hands would be shaking so badly that... Uh, the bullet could be going anywhere. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I just, yeah. I'm just uh, yeah. We don't you, have you the would, kind of you, training, you know, no, to deal no. with that sort of thing. Uh, so if you do, it, 
if you do encounter, a, a, of course, be very vigilant. Try not to crowd at space. But if, if you do, um, what do you do with the bluff charge? This is this is a behavior that I guess the bear is trying to intimidate yes. the other animal, including us, if, if we were on that trail yeah. or off the trail, whatever. Yeah. Well, there again, uh, drawing uh, bear spray is a good thing to do. Uh if if you have a fear of bears, and a lot of people do, and I appreciate that, you can't talk them out of their fear, uh, go hiking with three or four people. There's never been an instance where bears have uh, charged and injured anybody where there are three or four people in a group. I don't know whether the three or four people look like three or four wolves, but uh, bears don't want to have anything to do with that number of people. Mm. So you can be very safe. If you're alone... You just have to decide that uh, standing and defending yourself uh, will work. And uh, 99 times out of the 100, it will. Mm. It's uh, it's quite a relief. And then there one there that charged in Kodiak Island up a, a, uh, a ridge toward us. And uh, I had a shotgun, and I used spray on the, on the trail if it was going to come over the edge of the lip of the river which it never did, but I sprayed and jacked a, a shell into the shotgun. I said, I'm not going to go Christian with this bear. If it mm-hmm. appears, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill it. But after that was over, I couldn't get my heart right down for a, an hour. Mm-hmm. I, was, uh, I was fairly terrified. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's uh, just But, you just know, amazing. the behavior yeah. of mm-hmm. bears initially uh, is interesting. I asked the question once about... Uh, what were theirs like when Lewis and Clark first came uh, onto uh, the continent? The theirs had been living with native people for eons, uh, maybe 10,000, 14,000 years. And so I thought, go and read the actual events that Lewis and Clark reported in, in their volumes. There's a, an 11-volume series by uh, a, a university in Nebraska uh, uh, historian that uh, lays out it all in uh, paperback editions. It's about two feet of, of uh, books. And I went through every one of them to the references for grizzly bears and did an analysis of who approached whom. And lo and behold, I'd, I discovered, which no one else has, that no one got injured and the Lewis and Clark uh, group were shooting bears for the fat. They wanted the grease to cook the meals. And, uh, Tom, you can well imagine if you're hauling boats up rivers over the Rocky Mountains, what do you need? You need energy. And that's what fat is. And they uh, they killed one male there and got five gallons of fat rendered from that one animal. So you could say uh, the attacks were always by the people. No one got injured by a bear, and many, many bears died because they were being killed to eat. But their perception is not that, right? You you say that if you, if you get the edited journals, right, and you look at the index, right, they're all listed under bear attack. You're right. Uh, most of them. Yes, this Dr. Uh, Gary Moulton uh, has an entry uh, in the index that says bears, comma, grizzlies, comma, attacks by. And I thought, well, that'll be interesting. I better look at every one of those. There was no attack. But I wouldn't blame uh, Dr. Moulton. He is uh, uh, editing the whole journals. He's not interpreting what is going on in the journals. But unfortunately, that is a slip up. That uh, 
follows what's common among many scholars that have written about the Lewis and Clark. They they seem to emphasize that the Indians were a big problem for them, and grizzly bears were a problem. Well, grizzly bears were not a problem at all. Grizzly bears even came into their camp and circled their camp and then left. Uh, they didn't lose food to the bears. So I would say cold water and uh, not enough moccasins to walk on the rocks mm-hmm. was uh, one of their problems. <laughs> right. Uh, you recount in the book, um, is it Lewis has an encounter with a yes with a bear? Yeah. Tell one, me about that. Well, that's the one that people uh, always point out as uh, uh, a charge. And, and I have a quote, quote in the book, but... Uh, uh, Lewis was out uh, by a river at one time, and he saw close up, I think he said something like 40 paces away, he turned and saw this uh, huge grizzly approaching him. Then he realized that his uh, his uh, 1802 Pennsylvania rifle hadn't been charged with gunpowder and ball. So uh, he was defenseless and then turned and uh, headed to the river. And at one stage, he got overexcited. He said it full-on charged, but it never got to him over the next 10 or 15 seconds. He got into the water up to his waist, and uh, he describes how he turned and faced the bear with his pontoon, which is a spear. And the bear said, uh-oh, I, wasn't, I didn't want to get injured, turned and ran, I think he said, uh, two miles it uh, left. So there's no way that that could be interpreted as a charge because it had every opportunity to run in and, and smack on the knee if it wanted to. I believe though it was a curious bear that came very close. And uh, you can well understand bears are curious about uh, new things going on, mm. maybe the smells, uh, maybe they get some food, whatever. But it was an interesting anecdote. One of the factors you used to evaluate this, uh, Meriwether Lewis, uh, you know, says the bear charged at full speed and I'm sure it seemed that way yes but you're, you're saying that a an adult bear at short speeds uh, would rival a, a racehorse so this That's bear right. obviously would, would have it, overtaken him easily exactly and uh, if you look at the distances and time that bear couldn't have been going very fast because mm-hmm. he had time to move a certain distance and then he said the bear was uh, X feet from them. I don't know whether it was mm-hmm. 20 or what it was. So uh, the bear was not charging uh, at all, despite the fact he said it came out of full speed. But what is full speed? Yeah. You know? Uh, so uh, a bear, at least at short speeds, is very, very fast. Um, with, with climbing ability? Very good. Well. They can at climb. least the grizzly bears? Yep. And. Okay. Uh, some there's a myth that they don't do well running downhill. That's uh, complete nonsense. Uh, they're a four-legged uh, animal, and their vision tells them where to put each foot, and they're very sure-footed. And uh, you haven't got a chance of outrunning uh, a grizzly bear. Mm-hmm. It'd have to be three or four hundred yards away for you even to be able to climb 16 feet up in a tree. Mm-hmm. And if the bear comes at a tree at a speed, I can actually go up the trunk of the tree. It'll use the limbs as uh, ladder steps or whatever else. People have been pulled out. Uh, I remember one instance, uh, this is a bit of an anecdote, but uh, a man ch- climbed a tree and uh, 
was safe up above, and he was so angry, he started cursing at the bear. And the bear turned around. It was walking away. It turned around, came back, climbed the tree, and savaged him. Uh, you don't yell loudly at a bear. I've wow. seen this in uh, Brooks uh, River where uh, sort of macho men uh, tell bears to get the heck out of the way, and the bear will turn around and march right towards you and say, you don't treat us that way. This is our space. And uh, the people usually move away pretty quickly. The bears aren't uh, intent on charging. I've gone into the woods. I described this too. About a 600-pound male bear was asleep in the woods, and I was taking a shortcut off the trail. And I was about 10 feet from this bear, and it sprung off the ground. And I thought, wow, I almost stepped on that great big boy. And he looks back at me like, I thought we had an agreement here. You stay on your trails, and we'll we'll have the woods. But it didn't growl. It didn't charge. Its ears weren't forward. Uh, I was just another stupid person, uh, and the bears are used to a lot of people doing stupid things. So uh, I learned a lesson that day, too. So, uh, again, before we go to break on, on you know, what to do, uh, don't run. Climbing a tree may not get you out of the situation. So st- stand your ground and use whatever you can, even if it's a stick. Hopefully they have bear spray. Right, right. Okay. Uh, the, the main thing is uh, first to be alert on trails ahead. And then second, uh, take time to uh, figure out what the motivation of the bear is. It, it'll probably be as surprised as you are and want to get away. And if uh, you're at a considerable distance, uh, standing, uh, telling the bear what you ate for breakfast or something like that, and uh, the bear will hear the mumbling. You don't stare at it. Maybe you swing your head around. Sometimes I even scratch my head uh, like a dog does, as though, well, I'm pretty relaxed about this whole situation. Let's not let's not escalate what's going on. And the bear will watch and see what you're doing, and then uh, go on. I, there was one instance of a woman uh, alone at Brooks Camp that was going down a trail to the falls to watch bears, and she saw a bear coming the other way uh, toward her, and uh, she uh, got a little frightened. Then she thought, well, I heard that if you play dead is the safest thing to do. So she, uh, she lay down, and a ranger came along 10 minutes later and saw the bear had asleep beside her. Uh, She'd laid down, and the bear said, well, if you think that's safe enough here, I'm full of fish. I'm going to sit down and have a snooze, too. <laughs> it was terrific. Probably don't try that at home, though, right? That yeah, could have gone right. badly. But, yeah, uh, these yeah. are different bears yeah, on salmon yeah. streams. Um, and there are a lot of, you know, individuals. Just like as humans, there are individuals. And there are generalizations that are probably true for most situations, but not all. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes if you're at midday and there are lots of people around, you're dealing with bears that are comfortable with people. If you come late in the season after the camp is closed, say at Brooks River, we changed our notice operandi completely. We said there will be bears coming in that don't like people. And they'll be aggressive. So we always uh, went in twos, and we didn't carry weapons, but we carried bear spray. And we, uh, I told my students, you come back at exactly the uh, minute that you told me you're going to come back. And if you don't come back, I'm going to assume that you can't get to your radio. Uh, there's trouble, and we're going to launch a full-scale rescue for you. That way, even with no communication, you uh, you have a rescue going. We never needed it, but we were uh, uh, very, very careful. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, let's uh, let's do another break. Uh, okay, uh, let's see. My producer telling me we have a caller on the line before we go to break. Uh, so, uh, Professor, I'll alert you to put on these headphones. Um, hopefully, we've got those uh, turned up. So, Casey in Smithfield uh, is on the line. Casey, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, I just wanted to let uh, Dr. Gilbert know that uh, when I guess when he first moved in, his daughter Sarah was in one of my classes at Hillcrest, and he'd come and eat lunch with us a couple of times. I remember two times at least, and he'd tell us this story. And it wasn't for me as a kid. It wasn't about the gory details, although we were fascinated. It was I learned the lesson that it wasn't the bears. You know, it wasn't the bear. <laughs> the bear was protecting your cub, and I just wanted to let him know that it, it worked for me. <laughs> well, that's that's great. It's uh, good to hear from you. Uh, uh, thanks so much. You uh, bet. Appreciate that. So you you were you were fascinated by the story, and you apparently you got the lesson that Professor Gilbert wanted you to get. Yeah, I mean, when when Doctor, I remember him telling us some pretty intense details, and and I remember. It never affected my lunch, so that didn't bother me at all. But I remember being curious, because bears were always neat to me, uh, and the power behind them is in, just intense. But it helped me to know, as a kid, and even now, whenever I go to Yellowstone or out in the woods, I make noise, I, I do the things you're supposed to do, because you don't want to sneak up and surprise a bear. <laughs> yeah, and in you know, many ways, it's... Quite like a child going into somebody's backyard with a big dog who may have puppies. And, uh, you know, yep. children can get savaged uh, by, a, by a defensive dog. So we shouldn't hold it against grizzly bears. They're just doing what uh, mother carnivores do. They protect their young. Yeah, and I just wanted to let you know, thanks for the coming to have lunch with us. And, and I appreciated it. And I... Uh, Appreciate, I appreciate you being back because I, I, I always wondered about uh, where you were. So, <laughs> well, thanks very much, and I'll tell my daughter Sarah, who's living in Denver now, that uh, you called in. She, all right, she has fond memories of Hillcrest School. <laughs> that was a great. It was a fun time, and you made it funner. Thanks so much. <laughs> thanks, Casey. You bet. Appreciate you calling. Bye. UPRAccess at gmail.com is our email, UPRAccess at gmail.com. The book is One of Us. Um, The uh, subtitle is A Biologist's Walk Among Bears. The biologist in question is uh, Barry Gilbert. Let's, um, I think we'll we'll forego this next, uh, we'll forego a break. We're just about five minutes from the end of the program anyway. Um, So, Dr. Gilbert, um, I noticed that to one of your chapters, let me get to this, we talked a little bit about this, but I want to treat this again. It's very important. It's, it has a provocative title, Wild Bears or Industrial Strength Tourism. Is that an either-or, either or what do we need to do to uh, protect well, the bears and, and you know, and protect yes, us? This is, uh, this is the balance that the Organic Act uh, specifies for national parks. Uh, and it reads to, to this uh, uh, outcome that uh, the natural world is to be preserved and not changed over time, but the parks are for the enjoyment uh, and education of of the public. So the Park Service uh, tries very hard to balance those two, but as you can well imagine, when you get uh, 
private enterprise running lodges or flying aircraft into areas, they're uh, looking at the financial return, and they don't want, and the politicians that they lobby, uh, especially in Alaska, like uh, uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski, she reversed uh, 10 years of planning and an uh, environmental impact statement, huge uh, efforts on the part of the Park Service to move ahead and uh, move the, the camp at Brooks uh, River away from all the bears. The bears cross through the camp day and night. People are there day and night. And uh, the Park Service, unfortunately, was told to uh, reverse their policy. Uh, the uh, secretary at the time, Sally Jewell, was, uh, uh, had her ear twisted by uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski, who was defending private use of the park. And, uh, and senators in Alaska have said, if you, the Park Service, try to limit people going into the park, we will flatline your budget. You will get no money for anything, an increase. And unfortunately, uh, this is how politics comes in. And in my view, we had uh, our uh, 12 years or so of data, the, the Park Service biologists, and 40 years of data that said the camp was in the wrong place. It was expanding. It was on the native sacred burial grounds. The archaeological resources there are huge, but none of this science mattered. And in some ways, I feel like an abject failure because all of the good science that my students and I did showing the impacts on the bears was ignored in the interests of these people that uh, are turning a coin uh, on their businesses, whether it's float planes or upwards of 35 or 40 planes landing uh, right on this tiny little uh, Resort. So I finished my book by trying to explain to people uh, what's going on there. And now we have uh, two camps on both sides of the river. An $11 million bridge was built in this tiny little uh, Brooks uh, area. And it was just like the fishing bridge fiasco in, in Yellowstone Park where mm. they tried to move one camp and and the politicians said, uh-uh, we want two now. Yeah, these these are and these are themes that are resonating uh, in many places. Uh, just we have just a couple minutes left. Want to fit in a, a call uh, uh, from John in Moab. John, glad you called. What Don? Don in Moab. Sorry, go ahead with your question. Hi, I have a question. I've been told that if you encounter a bear, there's bears in the mountains up here, and I've been told that if you encounter a bear, you should make yourself look as big as you can with a big branch or something, and you should make a really loud noise. But Barry said not to make a noise, so I'm curious what, what which is right. Yeah. Okay, just uh, just about uh, 30 seconds on this. Yeah, professor. thanks. Uh, those would be black bears, so you're not dealing with grizzlies. Uh, they're much uh, less aggressive, and uh, you can intimidate a black bear. In fact, that's a good thing to do. In wilderness areas, black bears will try and hunt people and uh, kill them and eat them, but they can also be fought off with a fly rod or a, a stick or stones. But it's a good question. Important to know which, which kind of bear you're dealing with. 
Yes. Right. Thank you. Well, thanks, Don. Appreciate that, uh, Don and, and Moab. Well, we've reached the end of our, our time. Interesting discussion. And uh, for more, you'll have to read the book. The book is out and available. One of Us, A Biologist Walk Among Bears, Barry Gilbert. Um, is the author. Barry Gilbert, um, thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you, Tom, very much. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Greg Dalton. On the next Climate One, is there anything individuals can really do to make a dent in carbon emissions? You know, it's almost impossible to make an impact-free choice. You know, I don't think we should feel individually guilty necessarily for our consumption, but we should feel collectively responsible for fixing these systems and building a better world. Inconspicuous consumption on the next Climate One. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, and we are coming in hot for the new year. This week, it's all about Thai food, and, you know, actually, it's not all that hot. But we've got a lesson on making fresh curry paste, a tour of the foods of Bangkok and northern Thailand, and we find out why there are so many Thai restaurants in America. That's The Splendid Table from APM. Tune in Sundays at 11 here on Utah Public Radio. Statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org. isn't the only country with a raging immigration debate. Europe has its own. But maybe the solution isn't stronger borders. Maybe it's no borders. We live in a time when we can communicate with anyone in the world, anywhere, regardless of borders. And yet, our identities are chained more than ever to borders. That's next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Tune in Sunday mornings from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. here on UPR.